Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. All right. Hey, so good to see you all. And um, very much feel honoured and privileged to be able to come and share at the, the third Lobethal Baptist Church um, meeting. I know you've had been going on for quite some time, but of the official time, uh, it, it is really a, a joy and a privilege. So thank you very much for having me. Uh, might just kick off by praying. Lord God, thank you just for the honour it is to know you. Thank you for how your hand has been on each and every one of us as life. Lord, thank you just that that you haven't left us um, alone. Thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit and uh, we just invite you, Holy Spirit, to be amongst us now. That you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts and that we would be in a position where we can receive from you, where we can be challenged from you, where we can be comforted by you and where we can be renewed by you. And we ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Awesome. So we are continuing in the book of Acts. Um, last week, Simon brought in a brought, brought a great message to us about Acts chapter two. Um, talked all about his square gating. It's a really <laughs> hard thing to do. Um, I used to do boys' brigade, and we did figure marching. And every now and then, we'd be like, "Oh no, try to get it out." Anyway, I want to start by having a think about why it is you are here today. Like what are the events historically that means that each one of you individually are here meeting in Lobethal Memorial Hall on the 19th of February, 2023? Because these things don't just happen by chance. There's always preceding events that, that lead to it. Now for me, Looking back, I actually had the good fortune of doing Bible college back in 2014 and one of my assignments was looking at sort of the heritage of how, how you became, you know, a Baptist or whatever it is. What, what, what were the things throughout history that were pivotal in leading you to this place at this time? And so one of the reasons I'm here is because my parents were also Baptists um, in Victoria, and I moved here back in 2001. Um, their parents were brethren. Well, my mum's parents were brethren. So my, my parents met at Ringwood Gospel Chapel many, many years ago now. And, um, but they were there because my, parent, my, my mother's parents had come out of the exclusive brethren church. Now, the exclusive brethren church was, a, was still around today, Good luck trying to join them because they're very exclusive. Um, very, very strict, very legalistic. And um, uh, my grandpa actually got kicked out of the exclusive brethren because he had the audacity to go to his neighbour's house and watch Billy, a Billy Graham crusade on TV. And he refused to repent of it, the stubborn man that he was. And so because of that, they were kicked out and they went to a brethren church, the Ringwood Gospel Chapel. Now, the exclusive brethren came about because there was a split back in, let me check my little notes here, uh, in 1848 um, by a guy called John Nelson's Darby, who had actually begun the Brethren Church back in England. He was an Irish priest who, of the Church of England who um, 
felt like it was a little too rigid. They wanted a, a forum where they could all bring the word, where they could all be kind of level without this hierarchy that the Church of England had. And um, they were called brethren, interestingly, because they went around calling everyone brother or sister, uh, which I think is kind of cool. Uh, very low-key um, kind of breakaway. Now, before that, obviously, there was the Church of England, of which they broke, broke away from. Now, that happened back in 1538, I think, when King Henry VIII decided that he wanted to divorce his wife, Catherine of Aragon, so that he could marry another one, so he could have a, an, an heir, and basically split apart from the papacy at the time. Now, that was able to happen because before that, Martin Luther had nailed his 95 theses to the wall, uh, to, the, to the door, and um, kind of kick-started the Reformation, where all of a sudden people could have the, the Scriptures in their own language, where people were able to um, not rely on the church to be the mediator between them and God, but they could go straight to God and access His grace. And it was a... a um, doctrine of it is no longer it's not faith by works that saves us but it is grace it is the grace of God that enables us to come into the presence of God and have our sins forgiven and because of that everything is different everything has changed now Martin Luther wasn't the one that um, he, he was kind of the the little spark that lit it but beforehand there was re reformers for hundreds of years who were paying with their lives in order to provide for us what we consider and very much take for granted, the ability to read the word in our own language, the ability to have a personal, intimate relationship with God, the ability to know that we are saved beyond a shadow of a doubt because of the work that Jesus has done for us. One of those was John Wycliffe, who in 1382 translated the Bible into English. He defied the Pope at the time and he said, no way, I will see to it that the man out in the field is able to read the Word of God. Before that, there were councils, there was the Nicene Creed that was written, there were event after event after event where godly men and women got together and defended the faith. And they were able to do that because before that, you see where I'm going with all this, there, Constantine had this encounter because Christianity had spread throughout the entire Roman Empire and people's lives had been changed to the point where the church had grown and grown and grown. It essentially conquered the Roman Empire in many ways. And that all started with the seed of the very early church. Now you can go back further and talk about Jesus, his life, death and resurrection that turned the world upside down. You can go back before that and say, okay, why was Jesus there at that time? You see, for centuries and centuries, maybe millennia, the Jews had been waiting ever since Genesis chapter 2 for the one who would come, the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, for the Redeemer, the promised one, who would finally once and for all open the way to God. Now, Jesus, when he came, he came at just the perfect time. Isn't that just an amazing coincidence? You see, the Greek empire had taken over much of the known world, Alexander the Great and then his four generals and all the divisions that that happened. And they had been pretty strict on everybody learning Greek. So there was a common language throughout the known civilised world of that time. Now, when the Romans came along, you'd think they would have enforced Latin, but pretty much everyone still spoke Greek, and which is why we have the New Testament written in Greek. 
So we had one language where just about the whole empire could communicate with each other. You had the Roman roads where people could travel vast distances in very short time and get the message along. You had the Roman postal system where letters, such as the New Testament, could find their destination, could go out amongst everybody, help correct doctrine, help rebuke, help encourage, help grow the church. And so it's in this environment that Jesus came, that Jesus, as the Messiah, was utterly different to everything people expected. They were expecting a kin who, to come in and march and overthrow the Roman oppressors. What they got was a baby that was born in a manger, the son of a carpenter. They expected somebody who would be a fiery kind of revolutionary like the Maccabeans and call to arms so, and lead in violence. But th what they got was somebody who said, love your enemy and do good to those who persecute you. In just about all areas, Jesus flipped things on their head. He said, you want to be great? You must be like a child. You must be the least. You must be a servant. As, a, as one of his final acts, he went to his disciples and took off his clothes and washed their feet and said, just as I'm doing this, likewise you do this. A servant is not above its master. Yet the master stooped down to wash his disciples' feet. And I mean, you, you only need to flick to uh, Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and you see um, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus just, boom, blessed are the poor in spirit. What? Why? <laughs> For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. He goes on, he says, um, do not come to think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders is in danger of judgment. But I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. See, the Pharisees for centuries had been working through the law, through this covenant that they got given through Moses. And then trying, 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 failing, failing, failing. Because the law, what does Paul say? The law is powerless to make us perfect. Romans 8 talks about how um, the righteous... I had committed this to memory many years ago. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was made weak by the flesh, Christ did by sending his son in the form of sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in those of us who are in him, who are not controlled by the flesh, but are controlled by the spirit. So the Jews got the law. The law only brought death. The law only acted as a diagnostic tool to show us that our hearts were desperately wicked and in need of a saviour. The Pharisees expected Jesus to come and to be this perfect rabbi that would finally end all their disputes about, you know, can you lift three pounds on a Sabbath day or only two pounds? How far can you do this? And add to all the many, many burdens. But the, that is exactly what the law does. It burdens us, it weighs us down. And ultimately in uh, Romans 7, it talks about how the law is good, but it just brings death. Woe is me, who will save me from myself? Well, Jesus Christ came. He preached and he turned the world upside down and he started a revolution 
that the disciples, as we'll see in chapter 2, well and truly picked up. And that is the reason I would put it to you that each one of you are standing here, sitting here, in, at Lobethal on this 19th day of the 2023rd year of our Lord. How amazing is that? So with that in mind, let's turn to our passage. Acts chapter 2, verses 40 to 47. Now I'm reading from the New King James because back when I was 14, my parents gave me a New King James Bible and it's just what I prepare with. It's what I love and it's, uh, but feel free to read along. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptised, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and good and divided them among all, as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So I want to work through this passage and see what it was that these revolutionaries, these people who in Acts 17, it says, these people have come and they are the ones who turn the world upside down. See, to start a revolution, a revolution is, indicates a turning, a changing, kind of like the same, same thing of repenting, isn't it? To turn back, to change. And these are, the re- these are the disciples, these are the revolutionaries of who are our godly, godly ancestors of whom we are continually blessed, of whom we continue to experience the ripple effect of the faithfulness that they had in these things that we're about to look at. These faithfulness to turn the whole world upside down by doing what? By doing the little things with a spirit, with the Holy Spirit and with a a faithfulness, with an integrity. Overall, with a love that is motivated by those who have been with our Saviour. So let's dive in. Now, by way of context, the Roman Empire spent way too much time looking at this because I love history. But the Roman Empire is not too dissimilar to to the situation we find ourselves in today. It's a place where they prided themselves on their civilization. They prided themselves on their religious tolerance in many, many ways. Now, as Christians, we think religious tolerance, what? You know, didn't they <laughs> burn Christians in their parties? Didn't they throw them in the Colosseum? Weren't they hacked to death by gladiators? Weren't they torn apart by wild beasts? But they would say, yeah, no, we, we are very tolerant. You can worship any God. We've got our pantheon. You put your God in the pantheon and come and worship. And, and that's cool. Just so long as you acknowledge Caesar is one of the gods as well. So long as you don't say yours is the only way. And isn't that much like our world today? You can worship anything, like anything. You can go to the Church of Satan and people will still be like, oh yeah, that's cool. But if you say Jesus Christ 
is the way, the truth and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but through him, then you are a heretic in today's modern day society. And this was the situation that our distant brothers and sisters found themselves in, where during the time of Nero, there was quite systemic persecution. And then that was codified in law by Domitian back in, I think, 97 AD, where they would go from house to house and say, swear the oath to Caesar, declare him as God, keep your own beliefs, that's fine. And the Christians were faced with this decision, will I be faithful to Christ or will I face certain death? Now, it was a time where sexual liberation was very much in vogue, where if you were a Roman citizen, it was perfectly legitimate, even if you were married, to just go and have sex with, you know, slaves, to have sex with people of lower classes and um, of, of all variants. And, and that was celebrated, that was normal, that was acceptable. Very much like the time we're living in today where sexual promiscuity is promoted on the big screen, it's promoted on digital media and it's promoted in our culture at wide. And so we find ourselves in this conflict of how do we be Christians in our society now and we can take heart and look back, okay, our distant forefathers face very much the same issues that we are facing today in a very similar context, even though it's 2,000 years ago. I could go on about more and more things, but you get the idea. So let's dive into our passage and have take some heart, take some encouragement, take some challenge, I hope, from what, what we read in, in today's reading. So it says, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse or crooked generation. Now, not your normal touchy-feely kind of message. Kind of feel like um, Peter took a leaf out of Jesus' book. You see, in, in Matthew, um, I think it's Matthew chapter 4. Anyway, I can't see it in my notes. But it says how Jesus started his ministry and his message from then on was this, repent repent, turn around, turn away from your sins for the kingdom of heaven is here. And what we see and what we're going to see time and time again as we go through this beautiful book that is the book of Acts. Some say it's the Acts of the Apostles. Some have said it should really be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is there in, interwoven in every single line. But in the Acts of the, of the Apostles, we see over and over again this boldness as the apostles get up and start preaching. And over and over again, it is, hey guys, you guys killed the Saviour. He has risen from the dead. We have seen him with our eyes. 1 John says, that which we have seen, which we have looked at, which our hands have touched, this we testify to you. Okay, these, these people are eyewitnesses to the resurrection, which explains why they are just so radically transformed from these cowering bunch of people that are hiding from the Romans back in um, uh, after the, the crucifixion to these men that are willing to stand up in the marketplace and say, hey, angry mob, you guys killed the Messiah. Can you imagine, can you imagine that courage that that would take? You guys are the ones who killed the Messiah, but they were so full of the Holy Spirit that they didn't care. They got up and said, you guys have killed the Messiah that people said, 
What must we do to be saved? Because they had been witness themselves to the events that had gone on in Jerusalem. Jesus had shown himself to hundreds and hundreds of people. And so with weeping, they said, what must we do to be saved? And he says, repent, turn from your evil ways. Stop being part of this crooked and perverse generation. And the thing that is often a problem in the church, I think, and in, in our own lives, if, if we're honest with ourselves, when we go to our workplace, when we go to those places where it's not necessarily promoted and encouraged to stand up and be a, a bold and faithful Christian, is that we try our best to blend in. We try our best to not be that different. But what is the, what is the message that Peter is saying here is be different. Because here's the principle. If you want to change the world, you will never do it by being different. If you want to be people that turn the world upside down, as was declared about these disciples, you will not do it by being exactly like the world. Does that make sense? (laughs) Because I know as I look in my own life, it can be very easy to want to blend in. It can be very easy to slide under the radar. But these disciples made an active decision I am not going to just stand by. I'm going to be faith, a faithful witness. I'm going to bear testimony. And as they did that, they saw thousands and thousands of people see the difference, see the difference of what it is to have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you, of what it is to have lived, walked and breathed alongside Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Holy Promised One of Israel, because that must change lives. Now, it goes on and says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptised, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now, there's a certain significance to that, and it's a beautiful significance. Back when Moses was getting the Ten Commandments, was getting the Abrahamic Covenant, and laying down the law, the law that was designed to show Israel God's righteous requirements, the law that was that diagnostic tool that showed them they were riddled with cancer, the law that could only ever bring death and not actually bring life, the law that said this is how you come into the presence of a holy God because you see God had called Israel out of slavery. Israel then had a problem. God was leading them as a pillar of fire by day Uh, by night and a pillar of cloud by day. They were in the midst of the presence of a holy consuming fire and they needed to know how do we live in the presence of holy God almighty without being consumed. And so God gave them the law. Now God knew they were never going to be able to keep it, which is why his plan all along was that he would send the perfect lamb to give his blood that we might have life. And as Moses came down from, um, from the mountain, what did he find? What was going on? After 40 days, the people's hearts had already turned to idolatry. They made Aaron throw in, uh, form this golden calf and they were dancing around and worshipping. And Moses in his fury threw down the tablets and, and um, called the Levites, who is faithful Kill those who are partaking in this idolatry. And do you know how many people were killed that day? 3,000. About 3,000, it says. The exact same words. 
You see, the law brings death. We cannot make it to Christ on our own. We cannot become perfect by our own works and deeds. There is one who is perfect and he is the author and perfecter of our faith. And that old covenant, which seemingly was a nice thing, here's a law, try to keep it, left us hopeless, left the Jews hopeless and left them purely, if if anything, maybe prideful if they did pretty well, like we saw with the Pharisees. Otherwise, it was a weight, it was a burden Jesus described that just crushed people and weighed them down. But Jesus came that we may have life and have it to the full. He came as our freer, as our liberator to free us from our sins because we are not enough on our own, but with Christ, we can be made truly righteous. We can be made truly perfect. And so when the Spirit of Christ comes, when Jesus sent, um, sent his Holy Spirit at Pentecost, he was ushering in a completely new kingdom. It was a new start. It was the kingdom of God that had come as he taught his disciples to pray. When you pray, pray, my kingdom come, your will be done on earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this was a a new epoch, a new age, a new time. And we are the continuing beneficence of that. Benefit is whatever the word is. (laughs) And it is a beautiful, beautiful thing that we are no longer under law, but we are under the grace of God. And that changes everything. And as we're going to look here, we see that that changed how they related to each other. That changed how they preached. That changed how they loved. That changed how they reacted to their enemies, how they responded to persecution. And likewise, it must, if we have truly encountered the grace of God, it will change us. Now, they continued steadfastly or with great devotion, other versions say, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Now, I want to sit just for a moment on this word steadfast, on the word devoted, because there's this awesome quote by C.S. Lewis, and I don't know, how can you have a sermon without a C.S. Lewis quote thrown in? And it goes like this, Christianity, if it is untrue, is of no benefit. What did Paul say? You know, we are to be the most pities of men if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Christianity, if untrue, is of no benefit. Christianity, if it is true, is of eternal benefit, is of infinite benefit, literally, because it gives us eternal life. The one thing, the one thing that Christianity can never be is of moderate importance. When I read that, I was pretty cut to the heart because if I'm honest, I do find it very easy to be pretty half-hearted as I go about my life, to sometimes have moments where I don't even think about Christ or where I'm not praying continuously, where I'm not rejoicing always as Thessalonians exhorts us to do where, you know, opportunities come to serve in church and I think, oh, I can't be bothered, bothered. We can be really half-hearted creatures, can't we, sometimes? But Christianity can never be of moderate importance. Now, we've touched a little bit on the doctrine and the preaching. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers, Now, 
with this new kingdom, with this new covenant, the covenant of Christ, the covenant of grace, this was something that came under attack time and time again. And as if you ever get the, the privilege to do church history, you'll see it didn't just stop in Acts. It continued and continued and continues to this day. Now, the disciples and indeed us are called to declare and to preach and to teach the good doctrine, the good news, the gospel. You cannot declare it if you don't know it. It cannot change you if you're not sitting in it, if it's not ruminating in your life, if it's not what's going through your head, if you're not talking about it with your children, with your parents, with your friends. We need to devour it like bread. And so the, the, the early church realised the importance of this. You see as you read through the um, epistles, particularly the Pauline epistles, time and time again he's addressing false doctrine. He's saying these people in Jude, uh, he, he talks about this engineered deception that people are going to try to come in and just slightly tamper with the truth, slightly twist what God's holy word is saying. And bit by bit, there will be attempts over and over and over again to lead people astray. How do we know if we're going astray? Well, we know that we need to know the truth. If we know the truth, we'll be able to recognise the counterfeit. Are we devoted to the, to the doctrines? Are we devoted to God's Word? Are we letting it change us? Are we letting it conform us to His image? How much are we chewing on this? We could go on at length, but we, we all know this again. How much are we allowing the Holy Spirit in us to draw us into it? Is it something that we're hungering for? And if not, what can we do about that? We can start praying, Lord, give me a hunger. Give me a desire. Make me more hungry for your word because that's a kind of prayer that Jesus loves to answer, isn't it? Now, it talks about fellowship. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. In 1 John, he writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. What are we having fellowship with? We're having fellowship with the truth. We're having fellowship over the truth. We are having fellowship with one another. As the Spirit of God lives in you, you are my brother, you are my sister. And this is a bond that is such a beautiful thing. You can be overseas somewhere and you find out you're sitting next to someone on the bus who's a believer. I don't know if you've, you guys have had this before, but there's that instant connection, isn't it? It's that beautiful opportunity of, wow, we share the same Father. How cool is this? And it goes deeper than that. At the local level, fellowship for them looked like going into people's homes. It looked like what really is all the more so, I think now, quite a radical concept of being open in who you are, of having open lives that invite other people in, that invite other people in to, to discussion, to discussion about doctrine, to discussion about the hard times to truly fellowship on a deep and connected way, far beyond the casual, oh yeah, how's the weather? It's pretty hot today, isn't it? Yeah, that's nice. Oh, you see the footy, yeah, cool. But something that 
where, where souls are entwined together, where they would meet together. Often, as, as you read the stories of the early church, you know, because it was pretty dangerous for them many times, they would go underground, like literally underground, and go into the catacombs and they would have services there together. They wouldn't neglect the, the coming together. And then they would go back to each other's houses. They didn't have big grand synagogues and temples and stuff like that. The early Christians did keep going to the temples for a while until it became almost impossible for them to do that as they fell out of favour with the Jews because they were the people of the way. Um, but fellowship was such an, an integral, important part of it. Now, again, with that notion of flipping things on their head, Jesus taught, because it's very easy to have fellowship with people that are going to benefit you, you know, to have fellowship with your boss who might give you a promotion or with, you know, rich people that might invite you to their holiday house in the Bahamas or whatever. But Jesus, being Jesus, loved to flip things on their head. And what did he say? He said, um, if you do good to those who do good to you. Oh, this is in 1 John, sorry. Oh, no. Yeah, no, this is Luke chapter 6. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And then in Philippians, Paul tells us, instead of each person watching out for their own good, watch out for what is better for others. It's a notion of putting others first, of actual sacrificially giving of yourself which is not an easy thing, which is the whole point of it being a sacrificial giving. But church, can I challenge you? You are a brand new church in many, many ways. This is the opportunity of a lifetime to open your houses, to open your hearts, to open your um, friendships to new people and see what God does with that, to become truly one body that is connected, that knows what's going on in each other's lives, that is there to support each other, to carry each other's burdens. What an opportunity. What an exciting time in the church. And what an exciting time to be going through Acts, where there are so many similarities, so much important stuff, that if, man, if we get this right, generations and generations and generations um, before us are going to be impacted by what you guys do now. How cool is that? Just as we are impacted by generations before, you guys have the opportunity to set the tone, to set the agenda, to set the spirit of how are we going to meet? Are we going to be people that are moved and empowered and challenged by the Holy Spirit? Are we people that are going to radically give of ourselves in an unselfish manner that we might see the kingdom of God advance in Lobethal and the surrounding areas. We move on in Acts. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Um, Fear came upon every soul. Other translations say they were in awe. Now, thinking about this, thinking, hmm, it's an exciting time. Why would there be so much awe, so much fear amongst them? And 
We'll probably get to that in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. But as, as we look back in the Old Testament and we see what it was that the Jews were faced with when they came face to face with God, you might remember them coming to Moses and saying, we don't want just you to go be our intercessor. We want to see God ourselves. And so God, and Moses said, okay, that's what you want. Come stand around the mountain. Don't walk on it because you'll be killed instantly. And uh, God will show himself. And God came and there was thunder and lightning and it was terrifying. And the, um, the, the Israelites were so terrified. They said, oh, okay, bad move. Uh, Moses, you be the dude and we'll just go through you. And, you know, when Moses would spend time with God, his face would illuminate. It would shine and they would know that he'd been in the presence of the holy God almighty. You see, times... Uh, when, when the tabernacle was made and then the temple after that, where the high priest, in order to go into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, they would have to undergo all this ritual purification. It was one guy on one day that would be allowed into the presence of God to atone for the sins of the people. And, it, you know, as, as the stories go, he would have a rope tied around his leg, or around his body, so that if he was struck dead in the presence of God, and no, nobody's gone in there to get him out, I tell you that, they could just pull him out without entering this presence. So he who dwelt in the Holy of Holies, he who was at that mountain on that day when the Israelites said, show us God, had actually come in the form of the Holy Spirit to dwell inside the believers. Now, we can't actually comprehend that. We, we honestly can't. That's one of those things that I think we'll only understand on the other side of eternity. But it's a fun thing to try to sit and ponder and think about. Now, when the Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost, there was fire on their heads. They were speaking in tongues. And there were signs and wonders. People were getting healed. The dead were being raised. They were taking handkerchiefs off people and seeing people be raised from the dead. People would lie in the street and hope that the shadow would pass over them and that they would be healed. Some phenomenal, amazing stuff, time and time and time again. God was just showing, this is my church. These are my people. Wake up, world. Wake up and see the new kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus Christ has come. And it will not be stopped. Now, one of the funny things with signs and wonders is that I don't know how many of you guys have seen. They certainly still happen. There's certainly miracles that happen. And I look back in my life and think of the times where I've seen and been eyewitness to miracles happening. People who, whose eye was blind and they were, received sight. Things like that. And even I look back and often doubt. And we see at the very end of... Um, I think it's the book of Matthew, where Jesus is being worshipped after he's risen from the dead and they're up on the mountain and Jesus is taken up and it says what? And they worshipped him, but some doubted. They actually saw the, the living Messiah, the one who they had witnessed be crucified on the cross, be put in the tomb, resurrected from the dead, then before their very eyes, be taken up to heaven, but some doubted. And doesn't that just give you an insight into the condition of our heart? Now, I'm naturally a very sceptical person. I think it comes partly with my personality, partly with my job. I want to question everything and, and, and go, okay, what is the reason for this? Could this really happen? Now, signs and wonders are wonderful, and God absolutely gives them as signs and seals of his 
um, of his hand in things. And for some people, that is all they need. For other people, they'll find ways to to explain it away. For instance, my uncle, um, Uncle Peter Scarborough, who many of you know through his work in Hohidii, he was diagnosed some time ago with Parkinson's. He was so severe that he was almost wheelchair-bound. Now, Parkinson's is a condition that we have medication that can help ameliorate the symptoms for some time, but it's a terminal condition. You never get better. It's a one-way track to getting worse and then dying from it. It's it's quite a a horrible, miserable condition. And because he'd gotten so severe, he actually went to to see the specialist to see was there some sort of surgical... um, procedure they could do and there is a a thing called deep brain stimulation where often they'll often while they're awake take off part of the skull put in some electrodes and um, basically zap the parts of the brain that are responsible for causing the majority of the symptoms so he was all lined up for that it was a couple of weeks to go and he felt I mean, he'd, he'd been prayed for a lot and hadn't been healed he'd he's had lots of healings in his life actually it's quite remarkable um but he felt, I'm going to go to Sydney and see this guy who, who he'd had quite a miraculous healing with previously and get him to pray for me. And while he was there, he just felt this incredible feeling come over his body and boom, symptoms gone, still gone to this very day. Now, pretty amazing, hey? How cool is that? God is still very much at work and, um, and alive. Now, it didn't happen for a lot of people that prayed for him to be healed, but on that time, in God's wisdom and his providence, he decided, I'm going to heal him now. Now, I'm pretty sure my, my uncle's going to die one day, and he will. The, the greatest miracle of all will be that he will be taken up, resurrected, new and alive, and brought into the very presence of his beloved Saviour and God. But when my uncle was telling, telling this um, this to his physician, his, his neurologist. The neurologist couldn't believe it. He's like, oh, something must have just happened in your brain. I'm certain you'll be back here in a few weeks and we'll be booking you back on. He's like, cancel my surgery. I'm not going under the knife. Um, I'm healed. It is done. It is finished. And this, this doctor who had seen it, and could not deny that he absolutely had Parkinson's disease, that he was essentially crippled by it, was a man who could then walk in to his office, go, look at my hands, no tremor. It wasn't the normal shuffling gait of someone with Parkinson's. His Parkinson's faces had gone. Utterly healed. And this doctor couldn't deny that he'd fundamentally changed but could not quite bring himself to believe. And this is sadly often what we're faced, (laughs) often what we're going to face. Because the reality is in Luke chapter 16, Jesus talks about the rich man and Lazarus, how the rich man dies, Lazarus dies. They go um, in this strange sort of Sheol type scenario where the, the poor man's up in the bosom of Abraham, the rich man's down in torment and he looks up and says, you know, send some water and um, Abraham says, I can't. And he goes, we'll, we'll send Lazarus back to, to talk to the people and then uh, to, to my family so, so they won't come here where I am suffering in torment here. And what does he say? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. If they are not convinced by that, They will not even be convinced if somebody is risen from the dead. 
Now, that's a pretty profound thing. And it's interesting that Jesus chose the name Lazarus for this poor man because not long after that, Jesus did heal his best mate, Lazarus, from the dead. Now, many were amazed, many turned, and their hearts were soft and able to receive him as God when they saw this incredible miracle. Yet, what did many of the religious teachers do? They tried to kill Lazarus, the guy that Jesus had just raised from the dead because his testimony was so powerful. Hey, I've met the Messiah. I've been raised from the dead. Their hearts were hardened. And so we need to pray, not just for signs and wonders. We need to pray for a softening heart, hearts that are able and willing and ready to receive the good news of the gospel. And so we see God in his, in his mercy, in his grace, bless the disciples with, with what, what can only be seen as almost these incredible superpowers where they would go around and, and do these incredible works. Thousands upon thousands would see it and be saved. Many would start riots and try to get rid of them. And so you see, this is a pattern throughout Jesus' life. This is a pattern throughout Israel's history. It's a pattern throughout all, all of the um, post-Jesus history. And it's a pattern we continue to see in the world today. God moves in power. There are revivals and there are revolts. <laughs> Everywhere where Paul went, he started a revival and... Uh, uh, a rebellion, basically, people up in arms, people rioting. Lord, may we be people that start revivals and aren't afraid of the riots, eh? May that be true of us. Now, all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and divided them among all as anyone had need. Sorry, I'm just going to go back to verse 42 because I skipped the prayer bit. I won't be too much longer. Um, but prayer, one of the other key pillars of what they did was pray, pray and pray again. If you read through the book, the book of Acts in one go, and can I just put a plug out there for uh, street, street Lights? It's an app you can get. You find them on Spotify as well. They basically read the the whole New Testament and quite a, quite a bit of the Old Testament um, to some nice chill lo-fi beats. And it's just sit in the car, put it on. And I encourage you, listen to the whole book of Acts in one setting. It's only like a couple of hours. And it is amazing. It is such a worthwhile experience and well worth doing and very easy when you've got these beautiful beats in the background. Um, but time and time again, you see... Acts 1.14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Acts 6 verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Acts 12.5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him was made by God, uh, made to God by the church. Acts 13.3, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Acts 14, 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Acts 16, 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 says, pray without ceasing. 
What does it look like for us to become people that are marked by prayer? That every thought in our head is a conversation ongoing with Jesus Christ. What does it take to build a culture where we hear of something bad and the first thing we do is say, let's pray about it. You know what it takes? It often just takes one person being bold and saying, let's pray. Let's pray. Two, well, three words if you count the hyphen. Easy words to say, let's pray. Can I encourage you guys, as you start this new endeavour, this Lobethal Baptist Church, to be people that are marked by prayer? Because I tell you, no great move of God begins without prayer or is continued without prayer or outlasts the prayer effort. If we can become people of prayer, we can become people who will turn the world upside down. Now, all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now, this was a fun thing to be thinking about as I prepared. Is this Luke's endorsement of communism? Should we all become communists, sell everything that we own and give it to the church and have everything in common? Do we start some little hippie commune up on the hills here? I'm sure we could find a farm and and go for it. There's a big part of me that would love that, actually, I'll be honest. But I don't think that's what they're getting at. The more I've sat in this and dwelt on it and prayed about it, the more I'm convinced that what they had was a spirit of extravagant generosity. They took seriously Jesus' teaching. If one of you has two shirts and another one of you has none, give the other shirt to the guy that's got none. If somebody is in need, fulfil that need. In 1 John one John, I think it is, talks about little children, let us not love just in word, but in deed and in truth. If one of you has um, this world's goods, what's this from? Yeah, 1 John 2, I think. 1 John 2 talks about how faith without works is dead. How if you say to someone, go, be warm and well fed, but do nothing about their physical needs, What good is it? These people took this seriously. Now, we are blessed as Australians to have incredible wealth, far more than generally we need. What would it look like for us to be people that are extravagantly generous? What would that look like in in my life? What would that look like in your life to be extravagantly generous, not just with money? Now, I mean, there's, there's so many things that I'm not going to go through that, that indicate we should work, we should have jobs, we should invest our money wisely, be good stewards with what we have and have stuff so that we can give. But what would it look like for us if we all adopted that attitude of nothing is mine, I'm just the caretaker of these things for the time. I'm the caretaker of my house. Yes, I need, as a godly man, to provide for my family, give them shelter, food, warmth, etc. But this house is not my house. This is the Lord's house to be used for his ministry. This bank account, this is not my savings. This is the Lord's savings to be used for the kingdom of God. One of the things I did think about is that were, were we to be like this and actually many of us sell our house, 
you'd be very invested in the church, wouldn't you? If you had literally given everything so that the church may blossom and may grow, you would be probably the first person signing up for creche roster. You'd be the first person at the door welcoming people because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The things that we put a lot of our time, effort and money in determine where our heart is. And if our heart is to be for the kingdom of God, then let's start investing ourselves. Let's start becoming extravagantly generous. I'm conscious that I'm talking far more than I intended to. So I'm going to keep moving. Um, So continuing daily with one accord, in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So how then should we live? How do we become people that turn the world upside down? I want to put it to you that it's not rocket science. It's not some elaborate scheme to take over the world where, you know, we infiltrate levels of parliaments and do all these, you know, different, different political manoeuvres. It's very simple. We do the little things faithfully. We learn our doctrine. We share our houses. We openly pray together. We share meals together. It's not too hard, is it? And we faithfully commit to continuing the practices that our forefathers did 2,000 years ago for which we continue to experience the blessings of their faithfulness. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.